Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Emotions lie deep within each of us, hidden from outside view, yet powerful and busy activations that twist and turn inside ourselves. They drive our behaviors and our choices. We aren't always honest about what we truly feel because we are unsure and unwilling to evoke unknown reactions from those around us. An internal pressure cooker can result boiling with more ferocity as time uncontrollably creeps forward. Either that dangerous stream is released healthily, or it explodes, pushing decisions that are devastatingly final and entirely irreversible. Listener, the story you're about to hear is tragic and horrifying. Not everything is as it seems. The kind of individual who would carry out this crime is not one you would want walking the streets, A person who is willing to do the unthinkable to protect their reputation. A complete lack of responsibility and unwillingness to face consequences leads to a shocking and brutal decision. It was a dark and devilish plan that failed miserably. Now, let's get on with it. On August 30th, 2011, Buena Vista Township Police Officer Tim Patterson was in the middle of his shift. There were less than 9,000 people who lived in the township located in Saginaw County, in Michigan. The local officers knew the streets well. For the last hour, he'd been slowly driving around town in his squad car, looking for his colleague. Officer Ken Blue had missed the last safety check from Central Dispatch and wasn't responding to his radio. It was after 10.30 p.m., and the skies were dark, making spotting Blue's cruiser all the more difficult. He went to the outskirts of town, towards the department gun range, and the Van Buren Wastewater Treatment Facility. It was a location he knew Officer Blue sometimes headed to when shifts were quiet. He drove along North Outer Drive, a gravel road with green fields on either side. Right at the top is a junction as North Outer Drive intersects with Hack Road. As he approached the intersection, he spotted Blue's vehicle. It was parked up, with its spotlight beam on and pointing forward. As he followed the luminous light of beam, he realized it was shining on another vehicle. To the right of the intersection, there was a large metal double gate stretching across Hack Road, preventing unauthorized access. Just before the gate was a dark-colored Pontiac Aztec, 
stationary with the engine quiet. It looked empty with the rear door open. As Officer Patterson got out of his vehicle, he saw Blue slowly making his way toward the Aztec. He indicated he too had just arrived. When they reached the back of the vehicle, Blue went around the driver's side and Patterson around the passenger side. Within seconds, Patterson heard Blue shout over to him that they had a body. There are no street lamps along that road, making their surrounding at the time of night entirely covered in darkness. Only the spotlight from Blue's squad car and their flashlights gave them light to see what was in front of them. Tightly tied around the roof rail of the Pontiac was a brown electrical cable, the two-pronged plug on the end preventing the knot from becoming undone. As the cord dropped down past the passenger's door, it was pulled tight. There was a weight at the other end. As Patterson's eye followed the cord and got lower, he stopped abruptly. The other end of the cord around the neck of a woman who was hanging down from the car her body resting in a small ditch. There was no movement or signs of life. The woman was heavily pregnant. After radioing for backup, the two officers began checking the vehicle. Ken Blue found the woman's purse inside. He pulled out a cell phone, driver's license, and folded piece of white paper. As he opened it up and began to read the neat typeface, he told Patterson it was a suicide note. It was signed, I love you, and I'm sorry, Jenny. Jennifer Webb was 32 years old and eight and a half months pregnant with her first child. She was happy and bubbly and had been excited about the birth of her baby. She knew who the baby's father was, but they weren't in a relationship together. He was married. She planned to bring up her child alone and was quite happy to do that. She had found out she was having a boy and had already named him Braxton James. She had recently moved back into her parents' home after a series of break-ins at her own house with her TV stolen. They had left her shaken and wary about being at home alone. She wanted to focus on preparing for the baby's arrival and make sure they were both safe. But late on that night, at the end of August, less than three weeks before she was due to give birth, She was lying dead in an isolated part of town with an electrical cord around her neck. Her tragic death, it seemed, was suicide. At 1 a.m., Detective Sergeant Sean Waterman dialed the home number of Dawn and Donald Webb, Jenny's parents. When Dawn answered, he told her he was outside her home and needed to speak with them both. Once inside, he sat them down and told them as gently as he could that Jennifer had been found dead and she had taken her own life. Horrified and devastated, they couldn't believe what they were being told. Jenny had been happy and planning for her future, not depressed or suicidal. They showed the detective the items Jenny had purchased ready for the baby and how she had set up her bedroom for when she brought Braxton home. They were adamant their daughter had not committed suicide. Earlier that evening, Jenny had been at her friend Andrea King's home. Andrea had newborn twins and Jenny often visited to help out. That night she had been chatty and upbeat, just like her usual self. There was nothing off about her behavior, 
Jenny left around 8.30 p.m., telling Andrea she was meeting the baby's father at 9 p.m. They had planned to meet that night to discuss how to work things like access and if they were going to name him on the birth certificate. Detective Waterman told Jenny's parents a suicide note had been found at Jenny's purse. In it, Jenny said her life had begun to spin out of control. She didn't know how she could fix it. She was pretending to be relaxed and happy when underneath she was struggling and scared. She said she had lied about who the father of the baby was. She didn't want her family to think badly of her, but the real father was a man called Chris, who she had met at a bar. She had expressed a deep love for her family and apologized repeatedly for hurting them, but felt taking her own life was the only option. They sounded the tragic and desperate words of a woman in secret turmoil. But they were words that felt unfamiliar and alien to Jenny's family. They found them impossible to believe. They reported what they knew in their hearts, that something else must have happened to Jenny. That she would never have taken her life, and that of her sons. When the detective asked the identity of the married man Jenny had told them was the father of her baby, his blood ran cold. In disbelief, he realized this case had just become much more complex than it had first seemed. Jenny had told her parents, sister, and best friend, Andrea, that the father was a man she had been friends with for around 10 years, a man she believed was separated from his wife. He was someone she had saved in her cell phone as Ken Cop Boo. That man was Officer Ken Blue. It was information that changed everything. Detective Waterman called the Michigan State Police as he left the Webb home and requested their assistance immediately. They were going to need to look closely at Officer Blue, and that required an outside agency. At 4 a.m., just hours after Jenny had been found, forensic examiner Valerie Bowman from the Michigan State Crime Lab received the call to go out to the crime scene. When she arrived, Jenny's body and her vehicle were no longer at the scene. Her death had been considered a suicide in those first few hours. The cord around her neck and the suicide note all aided in the tragic impression the scene gave of a woman who had taken her own life. But now with the connection to Officer Blue, the scene switched to a potential homicide. Almost 200 feet away from Jenny's car were items laying on the ground, a necklace charm and a cigarette end next to a large visible droplet of blood. Swabs were taken and the items collected to be tested. Kenneth Blue was 36 years old and on his second time serving in the Buena Vista Township Police. Tall and well-built, with a mustache he liked to blend into his neatly cropped goatee beard, he started his career with the department in 1999 and worked his way up. In 2002, he took a chief of police job in Titabawassee County, Smaller than Saginaw County, but just 10 miles away, seemed a good career move and promotion. He stayed only 18 months and returned to Buena Vista PD to continue his career. Now six years on, he was an experienced police officer with 12 years of service in the force. His behavior that night would soon be under question and firmly under the spotlight. His presence at the scene of Jenny's death was unexplained, He had been out of radio contact in the hour before Patterson located him, 
on the outer drive and hack road intersection. Patterson found him to be jumpy and sweaty, most unlike his usual calm and relaxed demeanor. Something had spooked him that night. The following day, August 31st, Police Lieutenant Jason Teddy and Detective Sergeant Alan Ogg from the Michigan State Police sat down with Blue for an interview. In the interview room sitting at the end of a large rectangular table with a camera and audio tape rolling, Officer Blue faced questions he found difficult to answer. I'm just playing now. Yeah. I'm just messing around. I was shut mine up too, so we can all behave. Just tell me what happened tonight. What's what's going on here? If I drive in behind the car, focus the spotlight, and about that time, Tim's pulling up. I started to walk kind of towards the driver's side corner, and as I got closer, I saw the door open. The uh, back door, back driver's door was open. Took a few more steps, and I saw her laying on the ground. I saw the cord running to the top of the car. I'm like, oh, shit. I yelled at Tim real quick. I said, hey, we got a body. Found the wallet, opened the wallet up, went through the wallet, found the ID. And at that point, I went, oh, I know this girl. Did you guys check for vitals? Hmm. Why not? I don't know. I, you know, I just, I guess, probably not to disturb. I mean, there was no movement. You know, and when I, you know, when I looked, that there was, I mean, from a distance, there didn't appear to be any chest rise. You know, I mean, lips were kind of bluish. I mean, it, it wasn't giving me the impression that it was, you know, that she was alive. How did you not recognize her when you first walked up? Given the position that she was in, and it was, I mean, that's the hard part. I don't mean to sound like an ass. I'm just, you know, how would you not recognize her? Just kind of going to, going to Cottonwood at that point. It's just, okay, what do I got to do? But you, you you got a good enough look at her to see that her chest wasn't rising and falling, that her lips were blue. Right. I said, I mean, that's not a, that's not a position that I ever see her in. I mean, when I see her, she's got her hair done. So, you know, here here a guy like me and Al struggling with this right now because we're looking at one of our own sitting here going, how do you how do you go how do you talk to a guy about this? And I and I'm sure you saw it coming, but. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, once I realized I knew her, I'm, okay, bring it on. I mean, it's gonna happen, so. But there's a, there's a lot of things that have come up already that, I mean, the flags, brother, the flags. I know. You know what that looks like? If I were to grab you with my fingernails, what would I leave? Is there any possibility that her fingernails are gonna have any DNA underneath them? I don't, I wasn't there. Now it looks like my brother. And all I can tell you is I didn't. He was the father of that child. I have no idea. Is there a chance that you're the father of that child, Ken? None. Hmm? None. Never slept with her. You've never had a sexual relationship with her? No. Is there any reason that she would have told people that you were the father of that child? Not that I know. She has. Come again. She has told people that you're the father of that child. Her family was well aware of who the father of that child was. Didn't know you personally, but was well aware of what your name was, where you worked, what you did, and everything. 
Wow. No possibility of that? None. Why is it that I'm feeling more and more like a suspect of Tim? Every minute I can I can't tell you one thing to miss. I did, in fact, sleep with her. Suspicion against Blue and what had happened on that night was mounting. He admitted he did not check Jenny for any signs of life or attempt first aid. He said he only recognized she was someone he knew when he found her identification in her purse. It appeared he did not recognize her vehicle or her appearance within the first 20 minutes he was on the scene. When questioned on his relationship with Jenny, he repeatedly denied that he had been intimate with her or that he could be the father of her baby. After two hours of denials, as detectives produced the consent form for DNA testing, Blue hesitated. His mind began to whirl as he realized this was not a lie he could maintain. Before signing to give his consent, Blue confessed he did sleep with Jenny. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Over the next two weeks, each item of evidence collected at the scene of Jenny's death was processed and analyzed. The result would determine how this investigation would move forward. Jenny's parents and family were trying to process what had happened. Her death had come like a bolt out of the blue. They didn't realize how she could be gone, or why. It would be months of questions and sorrow before they would begin to get the truth. Jenny's funeral took place on September 3rd, 2011, in Saginaw with her many friends and family there to say a final goodbye. Honestly, we didn't believe it. We, you know, um, we're still, all the family's still in shock right now. Jennifer loved her life, loved that baby's life, and, and... There's no way that she would take them? No, no way. 
eight-month-old child uh, was not able to be born as a result of this particular death. Mother died, child died, so that's pretty unusual in that regard. That's what makes it harder because um, this is something that you see in the movies. Jenny was the most beautiful person in the world, um, and just remember her, remember the good times, and, and just try to put everything else out of, out of your head. As the results from forensic testing started to trickle in, detectives were building a picture of exactly what had happened on the night Jenny died, and it didn't look good for Blue. Saginaw County forensic pathologist Dr. Viriani carried out the autopsy on Jenny. His results confirmed what detectives and Jenny's family were already sure of. Jennifer Webb did not take her own life. Dr. Viriani concluded that Jenny had been killed by carotid neck compression, Her neck had been forcibly squeezed until she was no longer able to breathe. He believed her killer had held her in a chokehold, standing behind her with one arm hooked around her neck, allowing full power and pulling back and strangling her to death. DNA analysis confirmed that Ken Blue was the baby's father. Blue's DNA was also found under Jenny's fingernails and on the electrical cord that was wrapped around her neck. They were results that couldn't be ignored and detectives moved quickly. And that breaking news coming to us tonight from Saginaw County where police have made an arrest in the murder of Jenny Webb. Tonight a Buena Vista Township police officer has been taken into custody in connection with her death. Her body was found almost two weeks ago near a gun range used by law enforcement. The uh, Buena Vista police chief early on uh, determined that it was necessary to call in an outside agency. He did that. The Michigan State Police responded immediately. Uh, the Michigan State Police Crime Lab were called out on the scene and they responded. I think the rest of the system worked as it is intended. We received uh, analysis back from the Michigan State Police Crime Laboratory yesterday and some tests that had been performed and based upon those test results uh, we issued the four count warrant that is indicated in the uh, uh, complaint and information and uh, charges Mr. Blue with first degree premeditated murder. When they came here to the house to inform us that our daughter, had, they said, commit suicide, and we just flat out told them that ain't going to happen, or that didn't happen. I mean, the fact that he's supposedly a law enforcement officer, I don't know how a person can be involved in that kind of thing and then even contemplate doing something like this. She was giddy to the point that she was about to have a child. Hopefully they're after the right person and something will come of this, and hopefully that's, it's solid evidence, I hope. hope. We hope and pray it is. The prosecutor says that Blue was not taken into custody earlier because he was waiting on some key DNA evidence. He will not comment on what that evidence might be. He says that it will come out in the courtroom. But I do know that during this investigation and while the prosecutor was trying to obtain warrants that they were keeping a very close eye on Blue's whereabouts tonight, he is in a neighboring county in the county jail and he is being held without bond. On September 13th, the day after he was arrested, Kenneth Blue was arraigned via video link from Bay County Jail, where he was being held. He was formally charged with first-degree premeditated murder, assault of a pregnant person with intent to cause miscarriage or stillbirth, and two firearms charges including possession of a firearm during a felony. Michigan law didn't allow for Blue to be charged with murder for the death of baby Braxton. He faced felony firearms charges because he was still on duty at the time of the murder, with a loaded gun on his person. These official charges and Blue being detained came just two days before Jenny had been due to give birth to Braxton, 
for him to start his life in this world. That week should have been one of joy and celebration for Jenny and her family. Instead, it was one of horror and devastation. On October 20th, Ken Blue attended the preliminary hearing for his case. After hearing a summary of the evidence, the judge ruled the case would go to trial on all four charges against Blue. He denied Blue's request for bond. Handcuffed and wearing orange and white striped jail-issue clothes, Blue's hair was closely shaven. He was an imposing figure with his height and heavy build. Coupled with a hard glare, he was not a man invoking sympathy. During the hearing, he turned and winked at people there to support him in the gallery of the courtroom. His flippant, dismissive attitude highlighted his disinterest in the proceedings and the lost lives of Jenny and Braxton. Blue was held in Gratiot County Jail until his trial 50 miles away from Buena Vista Township. It would be another year before his trial would finally begin. As family and friends of Jenny filed into Saginaw County Circuit Court, they knew the details they would hear would not be easy to bear. On September 19, 2012, as Chief Assistant Prosecutor Jeffrey Stroud laid out the case against him, Blue sat looking detached and indifferent. By now, his hair had further receded and he'd gained weight during his time in jail waiting for trial. The story laid out was one of cold-blooded, pre-planned murder. A married man who didn't want people to find out he had fathered a child with another woman. His solution was as cold as it can be. For months before that night, Blue had been thinking and plotting, checking his options, and working through how he would kill and get away with it. As part of the investigation, his home computer was forensically examined. The technician's findings were sinister. During the summer of 2011, months before Jenny was killed, internet searches had been carried out including suicide, painless ways to commit suicide, and hanging. On August 2011, there were several searches on ways to die from carotid artery compression and how long death would take. The user logged into the machine at the time of these searches was Ken Blue. Minutes after Jenny had left her friend Andrea's home on the night of her death, she made a cell phone call to Blue. Moments later, she called him again. The final activity on her cell was a call she received at 8.48 p.m., a call that came from Ken Blue. The medical examiner evidence at the stand was dramatic. He told the court it would almost be impossible for Jenny to have hung herself from the electrical cord tied around the roof rail of her car. Her death did not come from hanging. Both Jenny's upper arms were bruised. There was more bruising on her face, chest, and neck. The ligature marks on her neck Dr. Variani found had been inflicted after her death. He demonstrated on a prosecutor the chokehold he believed had been used to kill Jenny holding her from behind and applying pressure until she was no longer able to breathe. Blue was bigger and stronger than Jenny and trained in police chokeholds. Jenny was heavily pregnant. While he was doing this to her, he would have been staring down at her pregnant belly, squeezing the life out of not only Jenny, but his own unborn son. I called this one as a homicide, that the pressure applied in the neck, but it would not leave any outside injury but still prevents the blood going back and forth from the brain. A person is going to have a fear of dying, so that is the one experience. But rest of the body would have some lot of movement 
to get out of that situation. Since the, the baby totally dependent on mother's circulation, when mother dies, circulation stops, the placenta does not get new oxygen which is supposed to keep baby alive and baby end up dying within a matter of minutes. Blue came prepared for the meeting with Jenny that night. She thought they were going to discuss their son. Blue knew he was going to kill them both and staged the scene to look like a suicide. What he didn't count on was Jenny fighting back against him. When Blue was interviewed that day after the murder, he had an injury to the inner corner of his eye and scratch marks on his arm. Injuries his colleagues testified were not present earlier that evening before it was believed he had met with Jenny and ended her life. Her resistance and actions in those final minutes as Blue overpowered her made sure people would know what happened to her, that they would know that she did not hurt herself and her unborn child. Jenny's instincts that night pinned down Blue as her killer and made sure he would pay the price. Caught up in the clothing that Jenny was wearing was the tip of a blue latex glove. Inside were visible blood drops that forensic testing confirmed belonged to Blue. On the outside of the glove tip was Jenny's saliva and more of Blue's blood. Jenny had left a message for investigators to find. They believed she had bitten Blue's finger during the attack hard enough to draw blood and rip off the tip of the glove. As forensic investigators examined Jenny's vehicle, they found bloody fingertips all over the inside of the passenger door. They all belonged to Ken Blue. The cut on the finger had bled as he had staged the scene after killing Jenny. Droplets of his blood, his unique DNA left in places that couldn't be explained by simply attending the scene as a police officer after she had been killed. In the bloody fingerprints... The injury caused by Jenny's teeth to the right index finger was clear. Within the swirling ridges and neat lines of a full print, a patch in the middle was interrupted and bare. A white gap was visible where there was damage to the skin. Two weeks after her murder, when he was arrested, his fingerprint card showed the same white patch on the right index finger, a wound still undergoing the healing process. His blood had been found inside his own patrol car and on the police uniform he was wearing that night, the same uniform he had tried to hide from investigators under the seats of his truck. Blue's DNA was found in the extension cord tied to the roof of Jenny's vehicle and around her neck and on the clothing she was wearing. The DNA expert told the court there was a match to Blue from over 26 different blood stains left on the scene. As Jenny had clawed at him, she had scratched and scraped at his skin, making sure his DNA would also be found under her fingernails. It was Jenny's necklace charm found just under 200 feet away from where her body lay, next to it a discarded cigarette butt covered in Blue's DNA. In the same area on the cold hard gravel ground was a spot of blood, later identified to be Jenny's blood. It was likely at that very spot that Ken Blue came up behind Jenny and began to choke her. The evidence against Blue was staggering, and the most shocking was yet to come. The suicide note found in Jenny's purse proved to be a significant piece of evidence. Jenny's family had already raised their concerns about the content and wording of the note. It didn't sound like Jenny or how she spoke. 
They were also sure her words would have been handwritten. The crisp white paper the note had been printed on contained 14 fingerprints on the back. Every one of them conclusively belonged to Ken Blue. Jenny Webb had never touched this note. The words typed so neatly on the front were words that came from the mind of Blue, in a disturbing, sick attempt to trick family and friends into believing not only that he wasn't the father of her child, but that she had made the decision to end her own life. One of the fingerprints caught the eye of the examiner. The right index finger had no injury. There was no white gap in the middle of the print. No sign of the injury Blue received during his vicious attack. Ken Blue had handled this suicide note before he received that injury. Before he attacked and murdered Jenny on the night of August 30th, 2011. A note he had typed out, printed, and brought with him as part of his twisted plan to kill, stage a suicide, and get away with it. Despite the overwhelming weight of this evidence against Blue... His defense team maintained Jenny took her own life that night. Against the prosecution's 31 witnesses they called, just one, were unable to refute the evidence that had been laid down highlighting a clear and direct path to Ken Blue as the killer. On August 11, 2012, 17 days after the trial started, the jury deliberated for just one hour before they came back with their verdict. They found Blue guilty on all four felony accounts. In Michigan, a first-degree homicide conviction means an automatic life sentence without the possibility of parole. A month later, Blue was back in the courtroom to be formally sentenced. Blue knew what was coming to him. He was a trained and experienced police officer. He knew he would be spending the rest of his natural life in a prison cell. Jenny's mom, Dawn Webb, gave an impact statement to the court and her father, Donald Webb, gave his reaction outside after the sentencing. Two parents who now faced a lifetime without their beloved daughter were never able to meet their grandson, Braxton. An evil monster is the only words that I can think of for you. So go to your cage and think about how you squeeze the life and breath out of my daughter and grandson. And I hope it haunts you every day for the rest of your life. Well, we're finally satisfied that justice has been done for Jenny and Braxton and that I guess we can look forward to the fact that he'll never walk the streets again. He's going to be put away and we'll, he'll never see the light of day. But unfortunately, he does continue to breathe, which my daughter doesn't have that right anymore. I, I would not believe through the whole process that he was even fighting or arguing the fact because, like you said, the evidence was so overwhelming. Everything was positive that he was the person that did this. There was nothing to contradict that, but yet he's sitting here trying to, well, basically claim that my daughter committed suicide. Well, I'm sorry, that did not happen. It's, it's been very hard. You know, it just, I really can't say that I've ever accepted it yet, but it's just one of those deals, I guess life has to go on. You just try and make the best of it and then go from there. But, you know, but finally the justice has been done, and so he's going to go away, and we should never have to worry about him again. Instead of dealing with the situation of his own making, Blue chose to eliminate it. But what that meant was unthinkable. A position of authority giving the opportunity in his mind to get away with murder. It was a callous and brutal plan that he thought about, made preparations for, yet his innocent and unsuspecting victim 
made sure she left evidence of what really happened on that dark night. A mother's instinct to try to protect her child is one of the strongest forces Blue could have faced, and he underestimated it. He underestimated Jenny. The bite, the glove tip, and his blood determined he was there while she was being killed and gave a luminol blueprint of everything he touched. He didn't get away from the scene in time for his plan to have any chance of working. Officer Patterson's decision that night to check out the Hack Road area ensured a brutal killer was caught and stopped from hurting anyone else. Kenneth Blue is a dangerous man. Once a family man with a promising career in law enforcement, he's now living each of his days behind the solid metal bars he once worked to ensure others behind. Now, he is one of them. His status as a former police officer and his crime, the cold-blooded murder of an innocent woman and her unborn child, his own unborn son, will not pave a comfortable path for him in prison. The world he has to navigate now is one of prison rules and yard politics. His freedom and agency of choice in his own life are gone and will never be restored. In Buena Vista Township each year on April 12th, Jenny Webb's birthday, and August 30th, the anniversary of her and Braxton's deaths, her family and friends come together to remember the beautiful and lively woman that Jenny was, and the wonderful mother they know she would have made if she had been given a chance. Thank you for listening. Keep the fire burning. <laughs>